if ever there was a Bible verse taken out of context, it would be Jeremiah 29, 11. If you're a Bible student at all, if you've been in church a very long time at all, you could probably quote it from memory. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil or to prosper you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Some of us make that our life verse. It is the verse that we put on our t-shirts, our coffee mugs, and the bumper stickers on our car. And I believe that it is a promise indeed that comes from God. And as we sang earlier today, all the promises of God are yes and amen. They are for all. But it's not a very good idea. It's not a very good idea to cherry pick the blessings out of scripture without understanding the context from which they were originally written. We should never just pick one verse and not be willing to read the context out of which that verse comes to us. These are words written by the prophet Jeremiah and they're written to a group of exiles that have been taken into captivity into Babylon. And when God spoke of giving his people a future and a hope, he was talking to a people who had squandered their future. And the only hope they had was that he might give them another chance and restore them to their rightful place. We can't just experience the goosebumps of God's hopeful plan if we're not willing to understand that they come out of the middle of God's painful discipline. It's a great scripture, but realize what was happening when those words were spoken. And it wasn't all that sweet for the people who received it. God, just a cursory glance at the book of Jeremiah would help us understand that God was not happy with his people. Just read a chapter or two and you'll realize God's not happy. Like when he said in Jeremiah chapter 7, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. And then God continues, from the day that their fathers, that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. The most hopeful thing that comes out of the book of Jeremiah is that in despite of their rebellion, despite they have rebelled against God, that God is still going to have a plan for them. That even though they are in the midst of discipline, there is a future that has hope with it. And that leads me to understand and consider and wonder what that means for us today. You see, I think there is a strong case that could be made that the condition of God's people today is eerily similar to the condition of God's people during Jeremiah's day. Especially in the Western church, especially in the American church, we are not good 
The evangelical community that we might be considered to be a part of is a mess. In many ways, it's disastrous and has harmed more people in certain settings than even that it's helped. I think the condition of many of God's so-called people is closer to that in Jeremiah's day than that would be in the New Testament day. As a whole, and I mean as a whole, not as you specifically sitting here today, we've not obeyed or inclined our ear to God. We've, we've walked in our own counsel, decided according to our own wisdom. We've been stiff-necked and stubborn in our own hearts. We've moved backward and we've not gone forward. We have too much pride, too much narcissism, too much anger, too much division, too much self-preservation. We've elevated celebrity leaders where they're more concerned about building a brand than they are shepherding the flock. We push to promote morality, but only nominally given ourselves to making disciples and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We fought for personal and religious liberties but demonize those who disagree with us and not prayed for those who persecute us. We've forgotten his commands. We've pushed our own agendas. We've turned ministry over to the hired hands. We've divided over inconsequential policies. We've ignored the most vulnerable and mishandled the call to be his salt of the earth and his light in the world. The church today in America is a mess. And when I say that, I mean Big C Church, the universal church. I'm not saying our church specifically is a mess, though we're not perfect. And we have a lot of things that we need to improve on, and there's a lot of sin still yet even in the midst of us. We would be foolish to say that there's not. I believe the words of Jeremiah could be directed at today's church, the Big C Church. And I believe the church itself is being disciplined, purged, pruned, purified. He will have for himself a bride that is without spot or blemish. That's the promise he has made. But we are being disciplined. And it's not just about COVID or government shutdowns or political upheaval. God, in his word, tells us that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And that judgment begins at the household of God. And if we simply think that judgment is only an Old Testament thing, we haven't read the whole Bible. Because in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus said to a very influential and essential church in Ephesus, I have this against you. I have this against you. Imagine Jesus saying that to the American, the universal church today. I bet he has something against us. He said to them, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Turn around. Do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's New Testament writing to a New Testament church, to people who name the name of Jesus and who declare that he is their God. 
Jesus still walks among his people and he is still dealing with his church, even today. Those in Ephesus were not just dealing with Rome, just like those in Judah were not simply dealing with Babylon. Those such evil empires were certainly the the risk that they faced, the immediate threat to them. But in both cases, God's people were dealing with God. And as he sovereignly used Rome and Babylon, he would advance his purposes, even using that which is evil to accomplish that which is good. Could it be the same for us today? Could it be that the evil we are facing in our land is actually something that God is using in his hand? He's not nervous. He's not surprised by what we face. He's not wringing his hands over the evil ideologies and the corrupt politicians. He governs the affairs of men. He is the Lord over all. And he is still building his church and he is still advancing his kingdom and nothing stops that. Even in the midst of such darkness, we have to recognize that we are dealing with God even more than we're dealing with the evil around us. Of course, we must wrestle against evil. The Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against principalities and powers, rulers of this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places but we must also take seriously the dealings of Jesus among his people. The biggest threat to our status quo in the church is not the evil we face. It's the God we serve. And as my friend David Cassidy said, Jesus is the one who has the power to snuff out the flame and remove our candlestick. Maybe we need to do business with him before we consider doing business out there. So how's that for an introduction to the message? Everybody got real quiet. There is more from Jeremiah 29 that I'd like to look at, and you turned there and you've been waiting patiently. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile." And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams they have dreamt. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you, 
and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this space. Excuse me, place. At this point in the book of Jeremiah, 10,000 officials, government officials, royalty, priests, other prophetic leaders, leading citizens, craftsmen, had all been led out of Judah into exile into Babylon. It was the first of two different exiles. There was still a puppet king there. They still had the temple. They were still able to worship. But all those that were major influencers had been led into captivity. It's interesting that Jeremiah was not one of them. Goes to show you that not many people thought much of Jeremiah even then. But Jeremiah decided to send them a letter. Because many still did listen to him. And so his letter was very encouraging and yet very blunt. He basically said, settle down, plant, plant gardens, build houses, go about your life, make a life for yourself there where you are. This was foreign to their culture. This was not what they wanted to hear. For them, for the Jew, everything was wrapped up in the promised land. And everything was surrounding the temple. And everything had to do with Zion that they would march up to on an annual basis, going up to Zion to bring praises to God. And for these who had always been temple-centric and Jerusalem-centric and Israel-Judah-centric, they are now being told, you are to be Babylon-centric. Something they didn't understand. They didn't really want to live. I want you to see what 70 years could do. We're all various ages here, some of us older than others. I'm 56. How old are you? Just think to yourself how old you are. Add 70 years to it. Now, based on that number, do you get to return to Jerusalem or not? I don't get to, probably. I don't think that I'll live to be 126. So that means my existence is right here where my feet are planted, where God sent me into exile. It gives you a different perspective to realize that where you are is where God has you, and it's where you will remain. Jeremiah doesn't encourage resistance or insurrection or holy war. He tells them to seek the welfare of the city and to pray for it, adding that their own welfare is tied to the welfare of Babylon. Not to Jerusalem, not to the temple, but to the polytheistic pagan city, the anti-God place of Babylon. Their welfare is tied to the welfare of everything that stood against God. Now just let that set for a minute. Let that resonate in you right now. That almost causes a revulsion in me. What do you mean my welfare is attached to its welfare? They're evil. They're despicable. They're everything that you're not, God. They're everything that stood against you. They have fought your people. They have fought against you. They have despised your temple and your worship. Why do we want them to succeed? God is God of the whole earth. 
And his ways are higher than our ways. And it's not our job to understand. It's merely our job to obey. This kind of thing messes with my theology. Maybe it does yours. Is God asking the same of us? Could God be asking us to pray for the welfare of that which has robbed us of what we thought we had? That we've lost what he gave us in the first place, but instead of hankering after that, we're actually to pray for whatever is happening today so that we could be influencers and we could actually have our welfare attached to it? Could God actually do that to us? We're a Christian nation. Are we? Really? The word welfare is key to Jeremiah's command. It's the word, Hebrew word, shalom. And we typically translate it as peace, but it means so much more than the absence of conflict. Jeremiah uses it several times in these verses we just read. Shalom is being rightly related to God and to others and to his creation. Shalom is the way things were in the garden. Shalom is the way God intended things to be. Shalom is the flourishing, our flourishing, creation's flourishing under God's purpose and design. So he says, seek and pray for shalom. For Jerusalem? No. For Babylon. We are to seek and pray for shalom of Babylon, he says. And therefore, we are praying and seeking for its transformation. That's what we're called to do. We're called to seek and work towards flourishing and pray for shalom in our city. God has the same kind of challenge even to us. We are to seek the well-being of our neighbors and those that are around us. We're to love others as ourselves. We're to actually prefer them. We're to do things that are counterproductive, counterintuitive, countercultural. It's the basis of Boy With The Ball's Love Your City. That we would actually go out not thinking we have all the answers, but we are praying for the betterment and the welfare and the flourishing and the peace and the shalom of the communities that we go into. And by doing so, we're praying that our welfare would be attached to that for which we're praying. It's also the basis of our church's missional thrust to love Jesus and to love others and to love together and to love our city and to love catalytically. The only thing we can do is to pray and seek the welfare of the city. If we sit piously on a hill and judge everyone around, we're no better than Jonah who said and despised the forgiveness of God for a Nineveh that did repent. When will we learn God's mission is bigger than what we think it is? As exiles in this place, we are called to seek the welfare, the flourishing, the shalom of our city, of our workplaces, of our schools, like we just prayed for our teachers, of our neighborhoods, of our commerce, even of our government. Seeking and praying for the welfare of our city is not an endorsement of evil. It is the means by which evil is overcome. 
It's only when we as the church embrace our exile status because we're exiles too, by the way. Look at what Peter called us in 1 Peter, elect exiles. He called us sojourners. Jesus said, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, even though they're not of the world. Jesus also said when asked by Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. We too, as followers of Jesus, are exiles in a land that we don't really want to be in. We'd much rather be home with him. And one day we will be. But it's this is the basis by which we can look at Jeremiah 29, 11. And all of a sudden it puts context to what we've been talking about. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, shalom, and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Church, as elect exiles... God gives us hope and a future so that we can share that hope and future with others. Working for the flourishing of people that we live next door to, that we work with, that we entertain with, that we are socializing with, that are living right with us. We are working for the welfare of our city. And as we do this, God's promise is that we will find him when we seek him because we've been seeking him with our whole heart. And he promises to restore all that we've lost. All of it will be restored as he gathers us from every nation and every place that we've been sent into. And he brings us back home to himself. This is his second return. This is his coming again. One day Jesus will return and take us home, lead us out of exile, all those who have trusted in him, including those that we've been able to convince and bring hope into their life that they would trust him too. They get to come along for the ride. When Jesus calls us home, we will no longer be exiles. We'll be home. Jesus has called us to work alongside him and to bring peace and prosperity, to pray for the welfare and for the flourishing, to pray for their benefit and their shalom. Those are the plans God has for us. So where are we today? Where do we stand with God? Could it be that the opposition we're facing in our lives is actually God's way of dealing with us? Are we so quick to determine that it's wrong when we've not really considered whether we're wrong? God, are you using that which I'm facing to get my attention? Possibly. He used Babylon to get Israel and Judah's attention. Is God correcting us? Is he convicting us? Is he growing us? Is he helping us trust him like we should have been trusting all along?
Are we feeling like our biggest threat is the evil surrounding us? Or could it be God himself who wants to upset our status quo? Are we trying to get somewhere else where God has told us to build and plant and settle where he's put us? Are we desperately trying to get back to something like James talked about earlier rather than doing what he called us to do where we are? Are we seeking the welfare of our neighbors, of our city? Are we trusting God to overcome the evil as we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but certainly do the spiritual battle he's called us to do? Let's ask ourselves these probing questions. As we consider the wonderful plan of welfare and not for evil, to give us a future and a hope. Amen. Donna's going to come and we're going to pray for you. And I pray that the Lord would help us to hear what he is saying and respond to him. There's a woman named Elizabeth who lived in the late 1800s, and she died of cancer in her 40s. Um, but after her death, her atheistic husband found her journals where she had recorded decades of her spiritual life and prayers for him. And God used this to turn him from atheism, um, and he became a priest in the church. But there's a quote from her writings that I think is a great description of what it means to live in Babylon, but to live like we belong to the Lord. She says, to view life with joy and to face it with energy. To be able to understand one's time in the context of eternity. To know the time and the season that we've been called to live in. To not despair of the future, but to love without tiring in spite of disappointment and indifference. To open wide one's soul to show the light in it and the truth that lives there, and let that truth create and transform without taking credit for it because it is simply the result of his presence in us. And that's my prayer for us this morning. Thank you, Father, thank you that you do want to teach us how to run with horses. Yes. That you do want to teach us how to live the dailiness of life in whatever set of circumstances we find ourselves as unto you, as a light, with joy and with energy, and acknowledging your transforming power in us the power of hope, that that's what we break off and give away every day. That as you break bread with us, that we would be willing to be broken bread for others. Yes, Lord. It doesn't come from who we are or what we think or what we've accomplished or our spiritual maturity or even the lack of it. That's right. God, the whole thing comes from you. It does. It's your mission, it's your power, it's your purpose. Yes. Every bit of it comes from the center of who you are and the fact that you've invited us into it and called us friends in the mission. 
is something we really can't even understand. But it does call us, Father. It calls us into sacrifice, and it calls us into obedience. As James said, it calls us to die, to lay it down, Lord, so that it can be useful to the master. And so we submit ourselves and commit ourselves and surrender to your good plan, to your good purposes, even, yes, Lord, to the circumstances, because you are greater than all of these things. Yes, Lord. If you'd like to stand with me, I feel to pray for those of us that feel the Holy Spirit's conviction and he's putting light on something in our own lives that we need to repent of praying for myself anyone else that would like to stand with me i'd like to pray for us right now the lord is speaking to your heart just stand where you are respond to the lord Lord, we really don't want to play games. There's just too much at risk. There's too much purpose that needs to be continued in our generation. We want to be useful in your hand. We don't want to be tripped up by the works of the enemy or the deceit that he might bring. And we certainly don't want to be crying foul when what you've asked us to live in is faith. We don't want to stand pointing a finger at all around us when what you've called us to be is like Daniel, who then that very Babylon was an influencer and sought the welfare of the city and changed the course of history. But we want to be your servants. This is a dark and evil day. But we were promised as much. Until you return, evil will continue to grow, just like the chaff grows with the wheat. But we want to be faithful in your hand and useful for your kingdom. And we want to love aggressively, loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as ourselves. And we want this to be the banner over us, your love We want it to motivate us to do things we wouldn't have done otherwise. And we want us to live according to your word. And we want to walk in the spirit, staying in step with the very thing you're doing. Forgive us, O God, where we have fallen short, where we've missed the mark. And help us, O God, to be restored to the purposes of God. To not only plant, and build and prosper but also to pray for the welfare of all those around us in Jesus name we pray this and ask that you would receive our prayer do a work in us I pray God Amen